submission, the footing of true grace. Submission, the footing of true grace. And really what that's going to remind us of in in very uh, powerful terms, I believe, is how we relate to one another in light of Christ's redemptive work. So even though the relationships described here are in the context of the first century Roman Empire, where there's obviously a lot that's happening as the gospel goes forth and Christianity enjoys an inevitable spread uh, as faithful proclaimers of the kingdom of God take their stand and call all people to repent. So this is, uh, just because that's the case, we definitely don't want to dismiss it as something that is only confined by application to the first century. There's a lot here for us, and I trust that the Lord will give us wisdom to see that. So submission, the footing of true grace in this text deals uh, first and foremost with servants or slaves. Uh, and ex- expanding our view of the text, it deals with relationships in the household. So as we move through this, I trust there will be a lot of blessing for us, a lot of clarity from the text that we can apply to, to strength, really strengthen our household, strengthen our relationships. You really, it's, it's really true. The gospel ministry begins in the home uh, between us and our family members. So uh, there's a lot here in every context. So let's listen to the text. Start at verse 18. Follow with me through verse 20. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. So just three verses here. We've got quite a bit of ground to cover more than we usually cover, but I think we'll get through all of it. So again, we're moving this morning from a couple weeks study on the relationship of the Christian to the governing authorities. In addition to that, we also studied in detail uh, the responsibility of the authorities, of the government to the people. And I have to relay my... Uh, appreciation to you guys for, for the patience you've shown me going through these things and trying to clear up some, some fairly difficult issues. And there's always going to be some disagreements on, on one level or another, but I'm happy we made it through. So uh, I'm sure there will be questions trickling down. Uh, we, I mean, we always desire to teach the word clearly here, and, to, and if there's anything muddy, we want to clear it up. But whatever your convictions are, I want to remind you that as we are moving on, um, what our common cause is. And we didn't get to cover it the last couple of weeks, but I'll bring it up here before we move on, because it's going to be a very important application as we go through this text, because it's talking a lot about relationships in the home. And it is this, it's from Romans 13, you don't have to um, turn there, but it's really going to help us uh, as a guide as we move on. In verses 10 through 12, after Paul gets done with his explanation of what the responsibilities are of the governing authorities toward us and us toward them, he says this, just to establish within us what is clearly the main thing in the Christian life, regardless of what the governmental authorities are or what they are doing. So listen to this. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For the one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. 
For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So we're reminded via Romans 13 and also in our immediate context in 1 Peter chapter 2 right here, whether or not earthly governments facilitate that, because we find that that is their responsibility. If citizens in the kingdom of God uphold and defend that, that is loving God and loving our neighbors, no earthly kingdom can stop the kingdom of God's advance. Remember that. We ultimately, as God's people, are called to set the example, wherever we are, of what it means to love our neighbors. And, and, and thereby, we basically function the way that God has designed us, has recreated us in Christ to function. So with that, we come to these relationships within the household. So first of all, to the government, to the civil authorities, and now in the household. The first word he uses here, and we're going to, we're going to divide this text into three sections. I'll say it now. So we have, first of all, the reproof, that covers verse 18. The reasoning, that covers uh, verse 19 and halfway through 20, and then the reward. Okay. The reproof, the reasoning, and the reward of submission within the household. So the first type of individual that Peter addresses is this, and this is addressed in several other books as well. Paul addresses it, and so does Peter. First thing he says is servants. Now, when Paul typically addresses servants within the Roman household, he usually uses a different word than we see Peter use here. We're used to the word doulos, which, or doulos, which is a slave. We think of the lowest of the low, a slave in the household, the personal property of the one who is exercising authority in the house. Here he uses oikote or oikotai, depending on who you're asking. So that draws us to the word oikos or oikos, household. Uh, this word can be rendered as domestic. So we think of a domestic servant. So the normal word is not used here. And, and this is actually a broader word for describing servants in any given household. It could be used as a slave. It could be used for a person who's actually more of, a, of an indentured servant. There's a, it's contractual work. They're not a slave, but they but they make a deal and then they come under that uh, particular uh, household master's uh, employ and then they do their work. So it's a pretty broad, uh, broad term. But I would say because of the way the word is used here in another context, we can probably see this as synonymous with slave. So slavery, if, you're, if you don't know, was a very big deal, unfortunately, in the Roman Empire. No one likes to be a slave, but it was actually... Uh, essential to them even upholding their economy, when you think of it that way. One-third of the Roman Empire, it is thought at this time, or, or one-fifth, was composed by slaves. Even doctors, we think of doctors as those who are sort of the upper crust of society. They, they, they make a lot of money, uh, they live in nice houses, they drive nice cars. Um, you could be a doctor in the Roman Empire and still be a slave, you could be considered personal property, the lowest of the low. You could become a slave in the Roman Empire primarily by three ways, perhaps more, but typically they were these. You could be captured. If you were perhaps a soldier in, in, in an enemy uh, army and you were defeated, 
You could be captured and sold into slavery. You could be born to a slave mother. That was one of the more typical ways of being a slave in Roman society. The other one was to be voluntarily uh, enslaved. So if you ran into uh, serious financial troubles and you had to pay it off for the sake of your family so you didn't get all sold into slavery, typically the head of the household would sell himself into slavery to work off the debt. I guess there is a fourth way. There is uh, involuntarily being enslaved through kidnapping. Um, and this is one of the, this is what Paul seriously frowns upon in 1 Timothy 1.10, where he talks about the law being for wicked people, kidnappers or slave traders, depending on the translation. Uh, it's best understood as man-stealing. Uh, this unfortunately still goes on today in most continents, except for Antarctica. It's you know, we, we've heard a lot about human trafficking. Same, same idea. You are robbing a person of their personal freedom by enslaving them or kidnapping them and then selling them on a particular market for uh, particular nefarious purposes. And of course, we wouldn't hesitate to say that this is a very evil, wicked, and abominable practice. And so when it came to slavery in the Roman Empire, I think this same pra or a similar practice is in view because when you were a slave, when you were a doulos, you were the personal property of someone else. And though even Peter says this here, we, do, we don't want to see that either he or Paul is advocating slavery. This is not the apostle's way of putting a positive spin on this institution. We must always remember that slavery, the very idea that one man who is made in the image of God can own another man as a piece of property, is a terrible thing to consider. We should, as believers, anyone who knows God truly through Christ, should, should look at slavery and say, God's, God owns everything. It is God to claim ownership upon a man, not for man to proclaim ownership upon another man. And yet we see this human institution uh, that occurred with appalling regularity. It was, it was just an accepted thing. It was part of the reality of life back then. And several steps have been taken uh, on the public level and on the government level to uh, rid it in various societies. So we would look at that and say that is a, that is a good thing. Slavery is a bad thing. And yet, when it comes to the apostles, especially in New Testament writing, we have to acknowledge it's a real thing, it's present, so, there's, so it pays to give solid instruction to those slaves, especially slaves who had come to know Jesus Christ, as to, to what to do. Because when we preach the gospel, what is the gospel a word of? It's a word of liberty, it's a word of freedom. Jesus came to set the captives free, but that is understood in a particular context. And so in order to, to give them solid instruction, Peter includes them in this epistle. We have to deal with this difficulty without being naive to its reality. You see people coming to Christ and saving faith. And one thing that we have to say what happens is that in Christ regardless of their social or economic status, the slave had, had spiritual freedom. He had personhood because identity, his identity is in Christ. His identity before God has changed. His relationship before God has changed. That's a reality. However, he looks at himself and says, well, wait a minute. I received Christ. I am regenerated. I'm born again. I'm a new man. And yet I am still a slave in this particular household. So, what happens? 
We also may ask the question, well, why didn't the apostolic writers simply command Christian slave owners to set their slaves free? Now, that's a difficult question to answer, and we'll try to explore a little bit, a little bit of that in today's message. Now, we have to consider the context, of course. Here's one thing. In the Roman Empire, Christians were not typically wealthy people. They, did, they, they were not known for being rich. You may have a few people here and there. We think of um, Philemon, who was a slave owner, so he must have been a man of some means. He had enough property to, to, to have slaves. And again, the Bible doesn't, uh, doesn't commend that, it, but it acknowledges the reality, and there is specific instruction for Philemon, the way he is to receive Onesimus when he returns. He is to treat him like a brother. So that's one thing. You don't see a lot of, of Christian slave owners all over the place in the Roman Empire. Secondly, if a wealthy slave owner did become a Christian and had a changed life, he was to, in the spirit of Philemon, to treat his slave as an equal. So yes, we could say he had an option, as did any slave owner. You had the option to free a slave. You could do that. But I would say consider this. Consider this. If the Christian slave had a master who gave his life to Christ, that changed the nature of their relationship. So the Christian master is not to regard his slave as a slave in the same fashion that a Roman or an unbelieving uh, slave owner did. They are to re- he is to regard his slave as his equal, as his brother in Christ. So essentially, this slave would no longer be treated like human property, like chattel, as we say. I mean, it was often thought of slaves was a slave was basically a vase that could talk or a, a hammer that could talk or an, or a pickaxe that could talk. And they weren't seen as people. And that was a way to degrade them and to keep them compliant among many other things. So if a Christian slave found himself under the roof of a believing master there, he was to be treated as a brother in Christ. So presumably we would think that that Christian slave was treated well, even though he was still a slave on paper. Now here's the deal. If your master was a Christian and was kind and benevolent, there is little reason to depart because under that household, you're seen as as his equal. You have work, you are cared for, you're fed, you have, you have a roof over your head. So the, so, so the impetus to leave is perhaps not as strong as we would be inclined to think under, if, under these circumstances. You had security, you had protection. And the other thing was you didn't have to start over. You could be set free, but without anything, it would be depending on the slave, if he was a believer and belonged to a believer, to simply stay under his roof to be cared for and to continue his work with diligence, knowing that God held his master accountable to be kind and benevolent and not cruel. Think of it from the standpoint of of Exodus 21. Listen to this. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh he shall leave as a free man without payment to you. If he comes alone, he shall leave alone. If he is the husband of a wife, then his wife shall leave him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master and he shall leave alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not leave as a free man. Then his master shall bring him 
to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. Okay. So there's that. In, in refer- if, you, if Scripture was your authority, and it was if you were a believer, you could, you could think back perhaps to that passage. Oh, there is a, there is a benefit. If my master is taking care of me, and, I've, and I'm being accepted as one of their family, and I, and I have a normal place in this household, it is more beneficial for me to stay as his brother in Christ and to continue serving and to be treated as a brother in Christ. Here's the third thing. Whatever God's reasons were logistically for not making a blanket statement to other Christians saying free or slaves, we have to conclude that somehow slavery, as bad as it was and as bad as it is, would play a part in the spread of the gospel. Remember God's priorities. Okay. Think about Joseph. Do, when, we, when we look from the, from the outside, do we think that Joseph being sold into slavery was a good thing? Not at all. His brothers did a wicked thing. Threw him down a pit, then sold him to a traveling caravan and lied about it. And we would think, well, that's a terrible thing to do. But what happened? What was the good news, if you will, out of a situation like that? The salvation of the known world, of Egypt and the surrounding territory. If Joseph had not been sold into slavery, he would not have been able to advise Pharaoh to save up food for the famine, and then everyone would have died. So we have to understand, even though we see wicked and disagreeable things occurring throughout human situa- uh, civilization, we have to remember that God is in control and he, and what man means for evil, what does God do? He means for good. And that trumps every single time what man means for evil. And so this situation is no different for God and his sovereign power to be able to use that institution as terrible as it is, especially in Rome, to see the gospel, the good news of his son, spread around the Roman Empire. And you think about it, it starts in the household. Someone who was perhaps sold into slavery could have an enormous impact in a household because he knew the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He, had, he answered to a higher authority. So just because one is a slave does not mean that he cannot have a huge significant impact in his master's house, whether his master is good or evil. And it turns out that this, in fact, would lend a strong hand in ending slavery in the Roman Empire because the gospel kept being proclaimed in, every house, in, in households throughout the entire Roman Empire, and people came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what I can come up with as far as that. And so he gives them, he gives them instruction here, very important instruction. So listen to this reproof. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. And of course, you can find a mix of both, but that is Peter's instruction. If you are a slave, if you are a servant, what does he tell us? Same thing with the government. Come under voluntary submission to that person who has charge over you. And I would say in this context, it was even more important. There were (laughs) there were several perils that immediately came to light if one went on in rebellion against their master. 
So if a slave did not have proper instruction, you never know what he was liable to do. If he had a cruel master, he could be subject to harsh and unjust punishment. And at that point, you had a few options if you were in a household of a master that you didn't particularly fancy. The first thing you can do, and this was the worst idea, and this kind of goes hand in hand with our response to an unjust government. You could rebel. I mean, before even this time, there was a very... uh, well-known rebellion under the slave, the Thracian slave that became, that came to be known as Spartacus. And that did not end well. In fact, 6,000 of them were crucified along the road that led to Rome as an example and warning to all who would rebel against Rome's might. And so rebellion is not the answer especially not at this time. That never ended well in Roman society. Now we have to think through the lens of the gospel. How how is the gospel of Jesus Christ going to do its work even in unfavorable situations? Especially a situation where you really didn't have any other option. If you were a slave and you escaped, I mean, it was tough to say, well, where where are we going to go? Even in that time, Rome was seen as sort of the, the lighthouse of civilization. Yeah, it's, it, it's, uh, its retribution under its law was brutal, but you got outside of the, of the borders of the Roman Empire, it was seen as a, as a dark place there was no, where there was no order and there were lots of barbarians. So what does one do? Well, rebellion was not an option. Peter says, be submissive. Be a good servant with all respect. I don't think that necessarily means that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to respect them or honor them if they are not an honorable or respectful person. But it means that in all of your, in, in every respect, in every area of service, to come under submission, to work diligently. Basically what Peter says here in the same spirit of Paul, and it sounds like a strange thing to say, but be the best slave they have. I kind of recoil at that, but in this situation, that's the order. Be the best slave you can. Work for your master as if you are working for God. Be diligent, work hard, show excellence, and don't rebel. Do not rebel. So in all respects, do those things. It was Calvin who said this, as if God whom we worship incited us to rebellion, and as if the gospel rendered obstinate and disobedient those who ought to be subject to others. It's a good point by Calvin. So if Christians started all of a sudden turning on their masters, what does that say about the gospel? It says that the gospel just creates a bunch of disobedient rebels ready to stab their masters in the back, ready to attack, ready to rebel, ready to lead uprisings. Like I said, if you did that, if you in the case that a a servant or slave killed their master, chances were that everyone in the household, again, to make an example, were killed as well as a warning to others. So pragmatically, that was not an option, but nor was it the godly thing to do. And we got to be careful here because sometimes it's easy to, I think, take the metaphor too far and say, well, this is how you should treat your bosses. Even if your boss is a terrible, cantankerous person, this is what you should do. I mean, the fact is, is you can just quit if you don't like your boss and go do something else in most circumstances. We don't want to overread the metaphor, even though there's some application. But that leads us to the second thing. But we can't do this. They they couldn't do this back then is quit. You can't just quit because you're property. 
posed quite a bit of a serious dilemma. Put yourself, put your family in danger. You could think, well, I could just walk away, but the question comes, then what? And you could put yourself in a similar situation as Onesimus. Well, if I run away, and if I'm captured, most likely I'll be dragged back to my master's household and killed as an example of what not to do. And here's the other thing. The third reaction is resignation. Not resignation of the position, but basically a resignation of attitude, where you go through your daily tasks without any joy or sense of purpose. <clears throat> and for the Christian, this, and this time was definitely not an option. It was unacceptable because, as, as, we, as we already know, even if you were a slave, you were ultimately a slave to Christ, and so you worked for Him. You did what was pleasing to Him. And so even if, even if your master was unreasonable, even if he was unkind, you remember who your ultimate master is. Now that's a universal application to <clears throat> any situation, any disagreeable situation, any person who has some kind of authority over you, whether just or unjust, whatever our work is, whatever task we put our hand to, we do with all our heart, as unto the Lord for his glory, trusting God that there can be a redemptive work in that. We never know who is watching. We never know who is listening. But we know God is watching. We know he is listening. And that is encouragement enough that whatever we do, no matter whose authority we are under, we do with all of our hearts to God's glory. So what that means, of course, is in all respects, not just some respects. We don't get to be choosy in every respect. There is submission here. And not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. And in a Roman household, it was quite common for masters to be unreasonable. If they did not respect you as a human being, if you were merely their property, they would not treat you with the same level of dignity or respect. Remember, they don't have a Christian worldview of humanity. We are to look at everyone, whether believer or unbeliever, as a fellow image bearer. Well, in Roman society, it was not seen this way. If you, if you were a slave, you did not have personhood. Remember, you were, you were a thing. You were a, you, were a, you were a piece of property that your master could do with you as, you, as he pleased. And so often, that was the case. You would find masters who were not reasonable. The word here for unreasonable is the same word we draw from that condition known as scoliosis, painful condition of the spine. It makes us think of uh, one of the Hebrew words, I believe it's iniquity. In Hebrew, it means to be crooked or bent over. So if your master was crooked or bent over, if he was not, if he was not an upright person, I mean, you think about the excuses we make, even in the workplace, even in our general relationships. You come across someone, you don't really like them. They're morally questionable. They're, you may see them as, as nasty, as compromised. They don't treat other people well. They don't speak of other people well. We say, yeah, this person's crooked. You know, if you were in, in, in this particular situation in the first century Roman Empire, you may use that as an excuse to rebel. You may use that as an excuse to be lazy. If they're not worthy of my work, then I, won't, then I won't work hard. I won't be diligent. I won't set an example. 
I won't be Christ-like. I won't be an extension of redemptive grace. I'm only going to do what I have to do. And I'm going to but I'm not going to do it with all my heart. And yet Peter says even if they're this way, even if they are crooked, be in submissive be in submission to them in every respect. And of course the hope is that you would by your example lead them to faith in Christ. I mean you read on in 1 Peter chapter 2 at verse 21, he says for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So we don't want to study this text in isolation of the text that is to follow, because that's the context in which we understand the one we're in today. For you have been called for this purpose. So don't let your displeasure at an unreasonable master, Peter is saying, prevents you from trusting in God, nor let it prevent you from being a solid Christ-like witness to your master with the hope that he will see your example and come to know Christ in a saving fashion. That's if he's unreasonable. But of course, one could hope, as the text says, for a good and gentle. So don't play favorites. Whatever it is, whatever master you have, whether unreasonable, crooked, or good and gentle, one that is kind and benevolent who treats his slaves well, and typically you would get that with a Christian slave owner, Christian master. It was easier to endear yourself to him. You could be appreciated, seen as loyal, as hardworking, could even develop close ties with the master and his family. So there are some benefits to having a good and gentle, benevolent master. But if that is not the case, do not let that be an excuse for being rebellious or dismissive or resigning yourself to your fate. He's saying step up regardless of the situation that you are in and remember that you are called for a particular redemptive purpose no matter where you are in Roman society and no matter what kind of master that you have. Good or gentle, or those who are unreasonable and crooked, you have an opportunity to preach Christ to them and to show them a different way of living. What is that way, you ask? And this is where you really turn Roman society up on its head. What did Peter just say in the previous text? In verse 16, he says, act as what? Act as free men. So even if you were a slave on, on paper in the Roman Empire, you were to act as a free man because that is what you are in Christ. So don't even let an unreasonable master prevent you from living as a free man. Show them that there is a freedom that transcends earthly freedom and riches, a freedom that is only found in Christ, a freedom from the slavery and bondage of sin a freedom that brings you under a new and greater master. I mean, what a witness, even in dire circumstances, even in unfavorable circumstances, in something as horrible as slavery. It didn't stop the gospel. And in any situation, the gospel is never in chains. It is always free to do its work. So don't act like your circumstances are going to impair or inhibit the spread and witness of the gospel, you show them that you work for a different master, a benevolent master who is always kind, who is always gracious, who is always just. What an opportunity to do that, where maybe there was not opportunity 
for much else. So don't let the quality and the excellence of your work depend upon the character and attitude of your master. And I would say you could apply this to the person you work for as well. I think the principles apply even though it's slightly out of context. I would say this principle applies even to fellow Christians who may, know, who may have no power over you, but whether they are crooked or unreasonable or good or gentle, look for a way to do good to them and to show them the grace that is only found in Jesus Christ. You know, we look on in our text, look at this, and here we have the reasoning. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering justly. Now keep, now keep in mind, this is very important. This goes back to our initial principle, that it, what matters ultimately is how God sees us. Because to return good and respect to someone who is unreasonable is going to be seen as unreasonable. Why would you be kind to this master who is unreasonable? Why would you work all the more diligently? This makes no sense to those who are watching and to those who don't know Christ. This, is, this kind of behavior is not going to find favor with them. It's going to just strike them as strange. In fact, if you have an unreasonable master, and yet you realize that Jesus is Lord, and you obey him first, and you work as unto him, that might confuse your master to the point where you're thinking, this, this, guy's, this guy's hiding something. It may infuriate him further. It may make him double down on you. It may, it may make him even treat you more harshly. But why, are we, why is Peter calling slaves to behave this way ultimately? Why? Because it finds favor with God. The fact is, friends, sometimes the things we do, no matter how righteous, no matter how motivated by faith, no matter how much it is accompanied with the desire to show grace and mercy to others, it may not find favor with men, but it finds favor with God. And that's what matters the most, finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. And that can be immense solace when in the company of an unreasonable master. And he says this, if you're struggling, perhaps why, why should I even do this? He says, if for the sake of conscience, what is the conscience? That thing which accuses or excuses your behavior. When you are, if you're in this position and you are a slave, you don't want your conscience accusing you. You always want to be aware of what God thinks of what you're doing, absolutely. But when you think about how conscience plays into this. You don't want to behave in such a way to where your conscience condemns you, whether shortchanging the master in terms of a lack of diligence in work, or even working with that faithless resignation where you start doubting the goodness of God. Those are things for which your conscience will condemn you, especially if your master acts toward you with hostility. You are to continue working faithfully in that household, always trusting God to do a greater work, knowing that also the Lord will strengthen you to endure those things. Gives us the resolve to persevere. You think about that. In, in, whatever, in, in whatever situation we find ourselves in, and this is 
this is regardless of our station, but especially, I, I think when he mentions slaves, that gives us insight into just how profound this truth goes. But when, in, every, in any situation, if you know that God's grace rests on you, if you know that in Christ, God favors you, what, what a strengthening presence that is for you to help you persevere, to help you endure, strengthening your resolve, strengthening your inner man to continue to work diligently. And if that favor can rest upon a slave, it can rest upon anybody. And it says this, and so he bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. So Peter doesn't say quit, run away, rebel. No, he says bear up under it. And Peter knows that this is hard. We see that Peter eventually is executed, crucified upside down. We know this is not an easy situation. But for the sake of the gospel, be one who bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Don't retaliate. Don't react in a faithless, vindictive way. But bear up under the sorrow. And here is the picture of a man holding up a heavy weight. You know, some of us in here like to work out. We know what it is to pick things up and then put them down. But this speaks of bearing a weight for an extended period of time. You do get fatigued. There is a point where you may collapse under the pressure. And even Peter here says he's realistic about it. He doesn't say sorrow. He says sorrows. He uses the plural. We may face a multiplicity of sorrows, but by the grace of God, if we understand that we are favored by him, we are able to bear up under those sorrows. And I, I would say, how else could that possibly happen if not for the intervention of the grace of God and Him strengthening us through His Holy Spirit? Surely, in the worst of situations like this, we would not be able to bear up under those sorrows. And sorrows come in many forms. And often these sorrows are unjust. And these are the, this is what he's isolating here particularly. As he's reasoning with slaves, he's He's saying, bear up under these sorrows, even when suffering unjustly. What happens when we suffer unjustly? What's the temptation? It's always to react. It's to retaliate. It's to let people know that, hey, they can't do that to me. What, who does that person think he is? We do. We have a strong sense of justice, especially as believers. We have a biblically informed justice, and so when justice is violated, we have a very difficult time controlling ourselves. And we all go through that many times throughout life. We have a hard time showing self-control when we either see or personally experience unjust suffering. But Peter says here, bear up under it. Be patient. The Lord's grace is sufficient for that. And this is a person who is, has not disobeyed. They have not violated their conscience. They have not disobeyed God. They are being diligent. And they know that as a slave, they could be targeted all the more for persecution. And yet the Christian is called to react with dignity, with respect, with regard ultimately toward the Lord. And then we go on to verse 20, still reasoning. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? So here there's an exception here, and here's Peter's admonition. What credit is there this is the only place in the entire New Testament that this word credit occurs and refers to the reputation of a slave that spreads as a result of his particular conduct that predicated his suffering. What do we want to understand here with what Peter's saying? He's saying, what is the point 
When you react, what, what good does it do? If you're a believer, if you, if, if you act in a retaliatory fashion or a disrespectful fashion towards your master, it's going to bring reproach to the gospel. We think about that Calvin quote we just went over. Did the gospel produce then a bunch of rebels? And we would say, no, it, it, it made free men, men who are free in Christ, but men who live to the glory of God. So even in an unfavorable situation like slavery, we do all that we do to the glory of God. That is, we're concerned primarily about God's reputation. So even in circumstances as bad as slavery, we would say, okay, as a believer, regardless of the circumstances I find myself in, how am I representing God? How am I representing God? That's the, that's the, that's the critical question. When people see me, what do they think of the God that I claim to serve? What do they think of the Christ that I claim to believe in and serve above all others? The Christ that I serve for whom I may even find myself in my current circumstances, right? What good does it do to be a rebel and bring reproach to the Lord? What does it benefit you if you sin? See, so he uses the word sin here. But there has been a violation not only toward his master, but toward God himself. That doesn't benefit you. You're called to glorify God. That behavior doesn't glorify God. So if you endure it, you're not to, be, you're not to puff yourself up by saying, oh, look at this suffering I'm enduring. How great am I, right? How, how patient I am, how strong and resilient I am. No, but you've sinned against your master. That doesn't credit anyone. And it's a reproach to God. But he says this, if you submit yourself to your masters, this finds favor with God. And I would say even with men. That is grace. It's evident that God's grace rests upon you, that his favor is evident in your life, that he approves what we are doing when, if treated unjustly, we respond in grace. So important. And this harsh treating is typically used to, to point to an event where you are beaten, you are formally punished for disobedience in this household. And I know, look, I know we have a hard time wrapping our heads around this, but this was the situation. So how, does, how can a Christian take this situation and glorify God with it? And whatever we do, we want there to be a credit to our testimony. And sinning is not going to strengthen our testimony insubordination is not going to be seen as a praiseworthy thing. And as we've seen from the Christian's relationship to government, the only time that disobedience would be called for is those two situations, right? If we are commanded to do something that God forbids or forbidden to do something that God commands. Other than that, what credit is there? Peter's making this personal. He says, for you, a personal, not just, he's, he, at first he says a man, now he says you, so he's putting his reader on the spot. If you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. It doesn't profit you at all. Robert Johnston writes this, it accords with universal experience that a brutal, low-minded master irritated with feelings of inferiority, which was awakened in him by the sight of the virtuous conduct of his slave, might in many cases subject the slave to cruel treatment, professedly, perhaps for some intended fault, but really as the slave himself and everybody around him knew because of 
the well-doing. So if one is going to be punished for that, then so be it, but never for evil. We have to remember that evil has always, in every social strata, attacked and assaulted the good. Because evil does not have a standard for good. Remember, evil has forgotten what good is and will see the good as, as an oppressive enemy that has to be eliminated. Darkness hates the light and will seek to snuff it out in any fashion possible. And yet we do what is right in any case. And so he goes on, and this is the reward. For if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. So he's basically saying the opposite. Yes, you are going to patiently endure a lot of things, but what is your response? If you're, if there's no credit if you patiently endure the punishment that comes because you've sinned or because you're acting like a rebel or acting the fool in your own household. But he says, there is another kind of patient endurance. And you, are to, and you are to do that when you do what is right. Still patiently endure it because God's favor rests upon you. God approves of that. Even if a poorly intentioned, bad attitude, unreasonable master makes you his target. And this is very important because sometimes we equate suffering with divine disapproval. That was a very... Uh, a very difficult thing in the Old Testament. Those who were very religious, those who were very proud and self-righteous thought the same thing. If you suffer, then God must be upset with you. And this is a warning against that. To say, if you, if you do suffer for, for doing good, God has not turned his favor uh, from you. God has not withdrawn his grace from you. In fact, he is pleased with you. Quite the opposite. Because the Lord knows that you are walking uprightly and being diligent for His sake. And that finds favor with Him. And so we are called to do the same. Patiently endure, not by doing what is evil, but knowing that even though we do what is right, God is good, His grace is sufficient, and we can continue to trust in Him. As Hebrews said, without, it, without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's impossible. So even in situations like this, friends, we trust God in the most adverse of circumstances. It finds favor with God. So a couple closing encouragements, just by way of application, things I've kind of been thinking through. Um, and some of this will be overlap from the exposition of our text. But, but listen to this. Knowing that slaves in this time were basically seen as human livestock, subhuman, remember, a thing, does not undercut their opportunity to be a gospel witness in their master's household. And think of this in our current context. We would, most of us, if we've been paying attention at all to what's going on in society, that we are in the middle of a culture war. We are in the middle of a culture war on many levels. And what happens in a culture war is that whoever the enemy is in that case, what they desire to do is dehumanize what they consider to be a threat. Because what happens? It's easier, it's easier to assault and persecute someone who you do not see as human. Most of us understand that. Dehumanize the enemy. So those who go against the popular narrative today are dehumanized. And yet, what do we still have in the midst of this culture war? We have the message of hope 
the gospel that actually gives life to man and restores his humanity so as to confound those who hate God. See the reversal here? Those who hate the Lord try to dehumanize those who love him. And all this time, we are offering a message that really restores humanity by virtue of faith in Christ. To believe in Christ, to be united with him, is the ultimate humanizing experience. That is what it is to be truly human, is to, is to identify oneself with Christ. And we keep proclaiming that message. No amount of dehumanization or insult can thwart the cause of the gospel. On the coattails of that, we understand, based on Peter's instruction, that anyone, even those who are seen, seen as human chattel, seen as worthless, can have a great impact. Remember, it's not how other people see you. It's ultimately how God sees you. God knows your heart. He knows if you belong to him, and he is able to use someone, even as even one who is seen as debased and worthless as a slave, he can use you to bring a life-giving message to those who do not know God. Here's another one. No matter how society views you, the freedom that we have in Christ ultimately transcends that. Again, we go back to what Peter says. Live as free men. Live as free men. This would be absurd to any slave unless that slave was a Christian. What do you mean free? What are you talking about? Live as a free man. Enjoy the freedom that transcends man's idea of what is freedom and slavery. You are still free. Love God. Love your neighbor. Who's your neighbor in this case? Your unreasonable, bad-tempered master. And yet, we are called to love him. So even the basest, unacknowledged slave who knows Christ is freer than the wealthiest Roman aristocrat. Here's another thought. That in Christ, no matter what our station in society, our primary inclination as new creations in him ought to be grace, not to retaliate, not to subvert, not to use petty insults or backhanded remarks, because who knows that in that extension of grace and mercy, in that, that clear explanation of the gospel of Christ, who knows how our behavior will impact even the harshest of people even people who have direct power over us for a time. Another thought here, it's beneficial for the spread of the gospel. And because a slave is saved by the gospel, he has an opportunity to demonstrate hard work and diligence in his duties because he works ultimately for God. What an opportunity in any station, especially employment, if we want to push the metaphor. Imagine being able to go and say that in an interview. Hey, sir, why should we hire you over this Joe Schmo over here? Well, because I work like I work for God. Oh, I mean, what a thing to say, that you have higher standards of excellence. I don't just work for you. I work for the true and living God who gives me the strength to complete every task with excellence and trusting in him to provide. This is true freedom, even in the midst of slavery. Even in the worst of circumstances, guys, I want us to understand that we still have a task to do, to do with diligence, to do with faith, to do with passion, to do with strength that God supplies. And that that goal never has to be 
thwarted or undermined because we find ourselves in unfavorable circumstances. If a slave, if someone seen as subhuman can make a mighty impact for the gospel, if he can be a, an Onesimus, you know what Onesimus means? Useful. If a slave can be useful, how much more are we able to be useful in the most dire of circumstances, even though it seems all hell and unbelieving society is arrayed against us? We have an opportunity by being ultimately submissive to the Lord to be faithful and to be diligent in the cause of the gospel and to not shrink back when the enemy assaults us in whatever way. Think of Paul's perspective, and I'll close with this. 1 Corinthians 9.19, Paul says, For though I am free from all people, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may gain more. So the, the big takeaway from this is to ask yourself, how are you being a servant to others? How are you being a slave to others so that Christ may be made known in their life? It's not an easy question to answer, but it's one, especially today, that must be asked in our homes, in the church, and in our place of employment. Even though we are free from all, how have we made ourselves a slave to all so that we may win them to Christ? so that we may win them to the kingdom of God? That's the question we find. You know, even in Paul, same thing. Who does he use? Not many mighty, not many noble. You know, he doesn't use primarily the smart, the good-looking, those who have connections. No, he takes those things that are shameful and debased in the eyes of man to do the most glorious things and that is to spread the word and to stand on that word which brings life to people. That's what we care about. That is our priority. Whether slave or free, we are diligent to proclaim Christ and his righteousness, calling men to repent and believe and to look to the ultimate master who is kind and benevolent and good and treats his slaves perfectly with all the love and kindness that we need. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for uh, your love for us. Thank you for our text this morning. I pray that uh, we would take it to heart, uh, knowing that um, even though uh, we're, we're in a society where slavery is typically used as, as, as a metaphor and illustration and um, is not as widespread as, as it used to be, but still, we want to understand the message. We want to understand the application that no matter what station we find ourselves in, that you have called us to diligence. You have called us to hard work. You have called us to be a light of the gospel and to point to others how we may be freed by it. So help us, Lord, to be ultimately submissive to you. Help us to in whatever way we suffer, if it's suffering unjustly, that we may put our hope in God. We know that ultimately, Lord, you, you plead our case. You stand with us. Your favor rests upon us. And let, us that, be, let that be the motivation to all the more uh, walk faithfully before you and to be a servant to others. For in that we find true freedom. Pray that we would trust your word on that um, no matter what happens that we would be faithful uh, to proclaim your Son.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.